Well, Pat, they said six seasons in a movie for Community, but here we are for our premiere of season three of our Game of Thrones recap show, Talking Thrones. Man, season three, dude. I mean, what was it you said? It's basically, this is all the season has going for it is the Red Wedding. And I'll give it that. But I also think there's still a lot to love about season three as well. Like, what, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I don't know, Dom. Uh, it's, uh, man, not really. It's, uh, oh, man, I, I'm caught off guard. It, I, I, I had an, I had, I had, no, no, I had some audio issue going on, but uh, I think the, um, you know, talking TV audience will agree with me in terms of the name of this episode. It's a, uh, it's another foreign language title. You know, it's like um, you do so well with those. Yeah, but what does it mean? Like, I, I no, guess no, I didn't I, do my yeah, homework. I so you know, it's funny. I didn't do my homework here either because I keep researching. I know Valor Morghulis is all men must die, but Valor Dohired has something to do with like, and those shall serve or something like that. I, I got to do my research on that. But all of that and more. Stay tuned. here with season three of talking thrones season three is an interesting beast i'm not gonna lie like because it's it, it's it's one of those seasons where not like very similar to season one i noticed this trend right with the odd seasons versus the even season at least for these first couple ones where the odd seasons again very set up very long form very drawn out a lot of really interesting character moments that usually end with some sort of an explosive climax and then the even seasons it typically tend to be like more fast-paced more action-based there's usually a lot happening in each episode i don't know what's what's your take on that you know, overall, I think what we're going to expect in this season is I, I have to agree with you that slow burn. We're, we're going to. Oh, man, I know uh, you missed that so much. It's it's one of those things where we have to finish the War of the Kingdoms, right? The civil right. war that's going on. And, you know, I think the way that the first two seasons have gone, it basically didn't give us any. Uh, direction in terms of like how long this war is going to last. Like the, uh, I think it was Melisandre that was like, Hey, thousands of people are going to die. This war is going to continue. It's going to go on forever. And you know, the one thing I will say, you know, we obviously have only watched episode one and we're recapping that here today. But what I remember about season three is that war does seem to drag oh, on forever. On. It drags. Um, Let's put it this way. Like if season two was like the fast pace, okay, things are happening. Like this person making this move. Oh, this person making this move. Oh no, this unexpected thing came out of nowhere. You know? Oh no. Like, Oh, we got the, we got the, we got the wildfire. We got the battle of Blackwater Bay. You know, all this crazy shit is happening. This is like, kind of like the, the after effects of it. This is where it's like, okay, all the action is happening. Now all of the characters are kind of having to regroup, kind of having to get back together and kind of having to like really suffer the consequences of their actions. And oh man, is season three a season of characters suffering for their consequences. This is famously the, se uh, the season besides the Red Wedding, which everyone knows about. This is the season with Theon's extended torture sequence. Arya learning hard truths with the Brotherhood Without Banners. Tyrion having to suffer in King's Landing under the under the yoke of Tywin. Now that Tywin is back in command. Sansa, oh man, Sansa, who 
finally got out from having to marry Joffrey now has to contend with potentially being his plaything and, 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 and everything that has to happen with her. Rob, obviously, suffering the consequences of his actions, which, again, everyone told him was going to happen. But, you know, and like this is a season where the characters really have to suffer for the actions. Even Jamie, to an extent, who, you know, Jamie and Brienne have this journey that takes them throughout all of the Riverlands, you know, and uh, what's called, and Jamie, ultimately, we learn a lot about him and learn that Jamie kind of is suffering in his own way every, each and every single day, you know? Yeah. You, listen, um, I think this season basically starts the, um, you know, let, let's talk about the Lannisters for a second. Like yes. they're sort of like consolidated their power in King's Landing. Yes. There's no longer a threat there. And now it's looking outward like they're yes. united. They've dealt with, um, you know, having, you know, basically they reinforced their armies. And now it's like, let's focus on the last remaining obstacle, which is Rob Stark. Um, and, you know, it's still a big threat and it's still like the north versus the south. And, you know, I think it's just a lot of waiting for the shoe to drop, so to speak, uh, throughout this entire season. Yeah, big part of this season as well, in addition to that, obviously, is I think that this season in particular, more so than the last season, like last season, again, like and like each of these first three seasons, these first four seasons, I should say, are continuing to hint and hype up the over overriding ex existential threat of the White Walkers that are slowly pending. But I think this season does a particularly good job of continuing to reinforce that threat. You know, we spend a lot of time north of the wall getting to know the other cultures of people that live up there. I think this is the season where we spend, if I'm not mistaken, we spend the least amount of time with the Night's Watch just in general. You know, I'm pretty sure this season in particular, because even season seven, I think it's this season and season seven where we spend the least amount of time with them. You know, season eight, we have that weird moment because like everything's truly consolidated at Winterfell. But like we barely get any of the Night's Watch this season. But I guess that's why we should talk about it. You know, well, right I, now. I, th I, I think we get enough, you know, like yeah, uh, just, just oh, the right oh. amount. Opening, opening scene oh, here. You want to talk about a solidifying opening <laughs> yeah. scene? This and I, I forgot that this was a cold open too. This was um like the first season where we this is the cold open before the credits roll, and we have Sam running through the snow. We we only hear. I think that this is probably the only instance where Game of Thrones gets away with not showing the action. You know, and we only hear it off screen where you hear the screams in the background of the White Walkers, the whites attacking, you know, the Night's Watch screaming as they're slowly being murdered. Sam running through the snow. He sees one of the brothers with their head, holding their, quite literally holding their heads in their head. Man, the White Watchers really are like, they definitely took a couple of cues from Michael Myers there. Like, just as far as the decorative nature that they do, whatever they decapitate their victims. And um, he's almost killed by another white. Ghost runs up tackles the white the lord commander burns it you see all the rest of like the night's watch members like i definitely will say like i'm, I'm still like a little skeptical about how any of them survived but uh the lord commander he kind of reminds sam he's like did you send the ravens and unlike the book sam sam did not send the ravens but he had a pretty good excuse he was like he was kind of trapped at the bottom of the mountain he was like trying to you know find his way through the white walkers he kind of like didn't couldn't see where he was going like he couldn't find the camp i don't know i feel like he's being a little harder yeah, it's it's it, it's kind of amazing it, you know that sam survived this right because the end of last end of last season it. like you know he's staring down a white walker and then now he's running in a fog and doesn't know where he is you know like the headless uh you know night's watchman that he finds and stumbles upon 
Uh, and he almost gets uh, killed until basically John's wolf saves him and yep. Mormont comes in and puts the final yeah. uh, death blows onto the At this the point, dead. Ghost may as well just be a member of the Night's Watch at this point. Like, I love how Ghost was, like, with John last season, then he kind of just disappeared, and now he just comes back and, like, literally out of nowhere to save Sam in the nick of time. Like, oh, man, it's good to see, like, the role that the direwolves are playing going here on out. But obviously, the Lord Commander turns around, has this big, grandiose speech, saying, you know, kind of, kind of the first of a couple times that we hear this where it's like, we got to get south of the wall and warn everyone or else by the time we get to summer, everyone is going to be like that thing pointed to the white that he just burned. Roll credits and man, if, if there was ever a, a, what's it called? If there was ever any doubt, any hesitation as to whether this show was going to be able to pick up after Blackwater, this is it right there. The shows, this show still had legs. It shows yeah, the show's I think a it lot gets, going for it. It starts season three off with a bang. You know, it's very suspenseful. It, it reinforces, like you said, the White Walkers are here. They're going to stay. They're actually going to be a bigger threat. They're actually going to be a much uh, bigger at, threat. Yeah, as the show continues. And, you know, listen, season three with the, um, you know, uh, the Night's Watch is going to be the return to Crasters and a lot of stuff is going to take a lot place. of stuff happens um, there. you know, and it's really going to change the, the makeup of what's going on beyond the wall, Indeed. Uh, you know, uh, throughout the rest of the series. Indeed. Speaking of speaking of which, as far as what's going on north of the wall, John and the beginning of the continuation of his journey with the wildlings, John Egret and their camp, they arrive at the wildling camp and John is just kind of flustered. He's surprised well, by their yeah, organization. He, he's, he's kneeling down to anybody that seems to <laughs> have authority. You know, he's just like, my Lord, you my know, Lord. Uh, and, and torment. <laughs> yeah. Or also introduction to a couple, we get introduced to a lot of characters in this episode, but obviously, you know, once he reaches the 10, he sees the giant for the first time. And eager yeah, kind of tells yeah, him like, exactly. don't sit there too long. Cause when giants start to feel threatened, they get pissed off. And then you kind of tells him, like, I once saw a giant pound a man into, into the ground. And obviously, you know, subtle foreshadowing for what's going to come. And I, I just love the look the giant gives him, but she takes him to the main title. Like, I love how kids are just coming out and just chucking fucking rocks at him. And then he, he's like, Oh, she's like, you're wearing the wrong cloak. He's like, and of course she's like, you know, they don't have this lot's disrespectful. They don't have fathers to kind of show them what's what. And he's like, well, what happened to them? And she's like, well, they were killed by your lot. And then he's like, Oh, Okay, that makes sense. And then go inside the tent. He sees, yeah. uh, we're introduced to Tormund Giantsbane here. This is our introduction to him. Obviously, famously, you know, but, you know, big, froofy, red-haired wildling. Exactly. And that's who John, you know, confuses as Mance because right. obviously he is a big sort of uh, stocky character. But, and he's also the first one to speak to him. Of course. But Mance kind of comes out of the shadows right, after literally out says, of the shadows. He's a little yeah, bit of a shadow leader here. Yeah. And says, no one kneels beyond the wall, you yes. know, stand up and all that type of stuff. So uh, this is the introduction to Mance and, yes. you know, how he's a capable leader. Um, and I think the most important thing that's said here is John to convince them that he's on their side is, uh, I really want to fight for the living. Yes. And I, you know, that's something that, uh, I think resonates with Mance, uh, and hopefully remains true, uh, you know, for John going, going forward. Couple takeaways from this season. I don't know, like I said, because I don't want to take away from those stories. There's a lot to talk about. There's there, there's not as many like location hopping in this episode as much, but like there's a lot that happens in these storylines. So a couple of takeaways that I have here. One, obviously, the introduction of Mance Raider, kind of how he handles his conduct. Right, he comes out of the shadows. He prefers to operate behind the scenes. You know, he he, he kind of lets the scene with John thinking Tormund is the is him. Uh, ride out a little bit. It kind of tells you a lot about him and about like kind of how he handles himself and the reason why he is the first person to have been able to bring all of these different wildling tribes together for the first time yeah, in like a thousand he, he, years. It makes sense. Yeah, he's a careful person. He's thinking about the logistics. You know, it's it's you know perception is a big thing. You know, he is basically a leader, and that's one of the things. Like this show loves to show 
what leadership capabilities are. Like that's why Mormont is the head of the Night's Watch and we see him sort of leading uh, and trying to teach John how to lead. Uh, And now Mance, he knows how to lead. And, you know, through his actions, he's ultimately going to also teach John uh, about leadership. Indeed. John learns a lot from Mance as far as leadership goes. And again, Karen Hines portrayal here. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. He's in four. He's in four episodes in this entire goddamn show. And it's one of the most memorable performances for me on this entire show. I really do love the character of Mance Raider. Again, like he, he shows it. Like the other thing that is immediately apparent too, is that he is, he is not a wildling. He is not a wildling. He, he was, he, I believe he was, if I'm remembering correctly, he was born North of the wall, but he became, he, he be, I think that he lived south of the wall for some time before he became a member of the Night's Watch, but he kind of always had that wildling blood in him. But I think that's another reason why he has he feels such a kinship towards John as they go throughout the rest of the show, because he constantly does feel that push-pull, right? He obviously, he has the urge to be free and everything, but he also does have a sense of kind of orderliness and a sense of, let's call it discipline, that I feel like is missing from a lot of the wildlings. And, I, and, and it's all immediately established here. And I love the moment, too, because, again, it doesn't happen exactly this way in the book, but the big takeaway here is the fact, and as to how John is able to fool Mance, is the fact that he's able to say, Lord Commander Mormont knows what the threat is, and yet he still did nothing about it when he could have. You know, if you guys are going to, if you guys are going to, uh, are, are supposedly the ones that are going to be fighting against the White Walkers, and I want to be against them now that he's actually, you know, now that John has seen them for himself, and now that he knows kind of what they're up against just in general, and now understands the threat in a way that he didn't before. You know, it's going to be an interesting journey to say the least. Again, John doesn't get that much face to face time with Mance, but the things that he does again, and only again, and only, again, I repeat it four, four episodes entirely that Mance is in. He's in this episode, he's in episode three of this season that we don't see him again until the finale of season four when John goes to negotiate with him north of the wall and then the first episode of season five where he dies. That's it. Those are the only four episodes that Mance is in and the fact that he makes that much of an impact throughout the show is impressive to say the least. So now we move south to King's Landing and again, there is, again, everything is always happening in King's Landing. King's Landing, it is the centerpiece of this show. It is constantly trying to not be burned down and burned to a crisp. And obviously well, well, that doesn't happen. Dom, but, look, looking at the notes here, you seem obsessed with Bronze. Uh, well, it focuses a lot on Bronze. It's the opening scene. It kind of <laughs> shows, you know, he's trying he's trying to get some reward. He's trying to get some just desserts for the battle. He's been made a yeah, knight. He's he, taking he, advantage he, of his new kind of like up jump position. And he's Pot in Lord, in. Lord Baelish's uh, establishment. Yes. Presumably, you know, there's presumably. I mean, he kind of other establishments. Much, why would we be in another establishment at this point? Yeah, I know. Lord Baelish is the, the you know, the king so to speak. Of, Essentially of, 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 of this business. domain. Yeah. And of course, Bond uh, so, comes in at the worst possible time. Exactly. It, this is a, a comedic scene. It, it's definitely meant to show you who Braun is, the type of person he is. Uh, but also Tyrion needs some help and uh, requests his services. And unfortunately, uh, the message comes at the worst possible time. Worst because, possible time. <laughs> uh, you know, Braun is, is basically already you know, paid up, so to speak, yep. you know, yeah, Bron's good. Um, Bron's having him. Bron's having his, and this is kind of like, again, it's not quite established until like next season, kind of the beginning of Bron's ascension with Tyrion. Not that they really have any, but like, it definitely like is established in like a couple of comedic scenes here. It's like, yeah, Bron has moved up in the world. Bron is now in a position where he doesn't necessarily need Tyrion. And even though a lot of the scenes are kind of made for laughs, it's continually continuing to suggest that Tyrion's position it continuing to reinforce that Tyrion's position is not nearly as stable as it was last season. You know, Tyrion takes a little bit of a backseat to focus 
focus of this season mostly goes towards John and Daenerys, much more so than in the last season and kind of how they're building themselves up respectively. And as far as, in, and also Tyrion is no longer the centerpiece of the storytelling in King's Landing. You know, you got the yeah. Tyrells there now. Tywin's back in King's Landing. There's a lot of stuff that happened But I there. will say that Bronn has like some of the best scenes in this episode because, you know, first of all, he gets the message. He goes to Tyrion's chamber, but, uh, you know, he's beat by Cersei. Cersei has a private meeting yeah, with great uh, scene, by the Tyrion. way, awesome scene. And you know, outside the chamber, Bronn's like, "Hey, I'm here to you know talk to Tyrion," and uh, he has a little bit of a skirmish with Cersei's uh, guards, and it's about to turn violent and bloody, but. Uh, obviously, it's sort of at the last second sort Averted. of diffuses. Second itself. time, by the way, I'd like to say the second time in the two episodes because it almost happened two episodes earlier with this encounter with the Hound right before the Battle of Blackwater. Yeah, so basically, you know, it, it's it is dangerous for Tyrion. Uh, still, you know, Cersei is telling him straight to his face that you're not really a threat. Uh, the conversation they have is about uh, Tyrion's request to speak to Tywin. Yes. And, and it's, it's very like, interesting hey, because, again, even though Cersei know. never directly says anything, Tyrion immediately tells she is extremely nervous, extremely nervous and frightened about what she might tell uh, about what he might tell Tywin. And that's kind of like I feel like much more so the reason like we we she goes to his room and we're immediately suspicious. We're like, because we're in our heads, we're thinking kind of, oh, no, you know. Cersei's here to kind of finish the job, you know, kind of yeah. ensure it. But the, the scene goes a lot differently than both us and Tyrion are expecting because Tyrion immediately... Well, I think it's okay. a really good character moment for yes. Cersei because it's like <laughs> Tyrion's like, oh, you know, I just want to speak to my father. What do you mean? What do I want? And it's Cersei basically says, hey, I don't want you going in there and slandering me. Right. And, and Tyrion brings up this whole story about how she had a servant whipped uh, for like no reason at all. And basically like it wasn't slander you know and it's just not at all it it clearly points towards how vindictive cersei is uh you know in terms of uh, what she's willing to do to to get what she wants right and so she she wanted to punish that particular servant back when she was a, a kid um and in this case you know she definitely wants to punish uh, Tyrion, uh, but he's he's or she's doesn't want him to actually like tell the truth and uh, you know put her in not. the bad uh, side of Tywin. If there's one thing we've learned about Cersei, it's that the truth never benefits her ever. That's why she's constantly in a world of her own lies. But yeah, she it, 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 the the other thing that this episode immediately establishes is that now that Tywin is back in King's Landing, like, it is official, once again, where the power truly is in the Lannister family. You know, last season, things were in kind of a makeshift position. Tywin was trying to balance out, like, the Lannister's weakening foothold in King's Landing with kind of battling with Rob uh, in the Riverlands, so it kind of wasn't as, t- his position wasn't as secure as, it, as he would have liked. That's why he kind of had no choice but to send Tyrion. But now that he's back, and things are kind of back in his command, now that they've thrown off Stannis, now that things have, be- have calmed down a little bit, and now that they really only have, uh, um, you know, Rob in the Riverlands and then uh, Balon in, in the north and, uh, you know, and the Greyjoys to deal with, you know, things have definitely started to look up for him a bit. And so it's kind of reinforced here once again that it's like Cersei is not in control. Joffrey is not in control. Tywin, Tywin, you know, Tyrion yeah. is no longer in control. Well, Tywin is the one in control. And, and, you know, Tywin, this kind of starts his uh, characterization of being disappointed in his children. You know, right. it's like specifically right. Tyrion. It establishes, because- it establishes, I find, Tywin's fatal flaw, which is the fact that Tywin, for all of his might and all of his sheer force, you know, that he rules through, Tywin is still a man of principle. 
And the problem that he consistently finds with his children is that because he is a man of principle and because he is a man who sees the bigger picture in ways that his children do not, you know, the same which will, but all three Lannister children, with the exception of Tyrion for the most part, but this again is where it was what creates the divide between Tyrion and Tywin, is the fact that Jamie and Cersei are for the most part pretty self-centered as far as that goes. Jamie only cares about himself and his glory and making himself look good. At least so we think. And Cersei is only concerned with constructing this fortress and making sure that herself and her children are safe and not caring about the whims and the wishes of any of anybody else in the Seven Kingdoms. And it creates this big divide because Tywin at the very least understands that at the end of the day, they need the peasants to, you know, be on their side and to understand and have faith in them. Because if they don't, that's what leads to moments like the riot in last in last season, you know, on yeah. top of the one thing is uh, Tywin also brings up his father and basically just sort of the lessons that he's learned from, you know, the people before him. And he's trying to pass down this legacy to his children and they're sort of just squandering it in yeah. his eyes. In and his so, eyes. yeah. And so like, you know, Tyrion specifically is the imp and, and is not a proper person. You know, I think he says in this scene, it's like by, uh, you know, man's law, you are my son, but that's not really true. Right. You know, something oh, well, like I that. Mean, let's, let's break the scene down. Let's break the scene down because yeah. again, it's probably for me, it's the centerpiece of the entire episode, which again, I loved reading this chapter because we're obviously, we're path, we're on the next book, right? We finished the Clash of Kings book two. We're on book three, A Storm of Swords, which, which famously makes up both this season and the next season, right? The next season is about the last like third that's just kind of wrapping everything up that happens after the Red Wedding, you know? But like there, there's a lot that happens still as far as it's a big like character moment, book out of the books you know and like so this scene right we have Tyrion. he's finally gets his meeting with tywin and everything and tywin like kind of tywin is you know Tyrion's trying to make small talk tywin is having none of it right and it basically kind of comes down to it with the fact that like Tyrion is unsatisfied he doesn't feel safe in king's landing he doesn't want to be in king's landing anymore now that tywin is there he's like i've, I've served my purpose I, I defended this city i didn't get any gratitude for it i got shunted off to this little cell you know, it's like, what do I want? I want Casterly Rock. I want to rule Casterly Rock. You don't need it. You're going to be here serving as Hand of the King. It's my right as your only heir now that Jamie has joined the King's Guard and forbidden all heirs. You know, I want what's coming to me. And Tywin straight up says, no, you're not worth it. Not in my eyes. And it's kind of fucked up, to, like to say the least. This is really like we always knew that Tywin had a lot of enmity for Tyrion. But I guess it's this. The reason why this comes as such a shock is because for the first two seasons where we saw the two of them together, it was kind of like Tywin begrudgingly offering Tyrion like a position of power because he kind of had no choice and Tyrion like kind of being forced to accept him. But now we're kind of, for lack of a better word, back to the status quo. And now we see like just Tywin's full feelings towards Tyrion unleashed. And they're well, not it's, kind uh, to say the least. It's also, you know, Tywin, you know, if you watch later seasons and, and you get a, a little bit ahead of season three, it's essentially he talks to Jamie and he tries to convince him to, take up the lands and basically ignore the fact that he took that oath. Right. Uh, you know, and that's it's what, one that's of those thing things. Like, Tywin does not care yeah. about odes a lot. It's, it's all no, about no, what it, services him. Yeah. And Tywin has a full vision that Jamie's going to take over his lands and he's going to basically lead the family. Uh, and it's going to be by any means necessary. Tywin's right. going to make it happen. Uh, and part of that is the fact that they secured the crown. Like you can't really go against, uh, you know, Joffrey's rule. If, you know, Joffrey allows Jamie to pick up the lands and rule, uh, then, you know, who's going to stop them. And so I think, you know, Tywin has this, uh, vision of what needs to take place. I think it's one of those visions that stems from, you know, his, 
uh, father and probably uh, grandfather. And, you know, this is the way it's going to be. You know, this is how you rule a family. And, you know, Tyrion doesn't really fit into that mold. I think Tyrion is intelligent and Tywin understands that. Uh, and he's only willing to use it when it serves him to his advantage. Right. The, the Tywin's fatal flaw, right? We've talked a lot about characters' fatal flaw and how each and every one of the characters, despite, d- despite the execution of it for certain of the characters in the later seasons, each and every character falls victim to their fatal flaw. And Tywin's fatal flaw is consistently putting... Um, it's ironic because it goes against it, right? It's a thing that he says um, to Tyrion in the finale, which is that the house that puts uh, legacy legacy and family first will forever outlast the family that puts the whims and wishes of their children ahead of them. And that's kind of Tywin's fatal flaw, is that Tywin at the end of the day sees his family, his children, as commodities. They are not people with their own individual kind of aims and wants and goals. They are merely there to serve and continue to prop up the legacy of the Lannisters. And this is kind of the real first instance that we get that because before the La- they constantly had to play second fiddle to Robert Baratheon and then they were constantly in a position of trying to maintain and struggle their power. But now that they've kind of established themselves, it's kind of back to that status quo. And now that Tywin is back in King's Landing for the first time and I think it's 30 years since he was serving as Aerys Targaryen's hand, he's going to start to see that that is not at all the case. Where Tyrion again tries to play ball but has wants and aims of him of his own Cersei is not at all willing to play ball you know because Tywin's got a lot of political games that he's attempting to play in order to continue to maintain the Lannister's foothold especially now that the Tyrells are in the city and attempted to play games of themselves but Tywin especially for example oh thanks Chris thanks for tuning in man that means a lot uh but Tywin uh what's it called makes it clear here that Again, because Tyrion does not kind of fit into his own worldview, that Tyrion will will definitely get um, t- Tyrion will definitely get a, you know a suitable reward as he says, but he will never inherit Castle the Rock because in his his mind that is for Jaime, his golden boy. Even though Tyrion, in a lot of ways, I think this is even referenced by another Lannister cousin in the books, is much more so Tywin's son than Jaime is. You know, but I think that's a nice segue into kind of the last segment that we explore in King's Landing, which is the enmity between the Tyrells and the Lannisters that starts here. It's very, I think it's much more established in the next episode when we meet Lady Olenna, who's revealed to be the true power behind the Tyrells. But like, it's a couple of very sparse scenes that we see throughout the second half of the episode, but I think they're amazingly well done, which is first we see Joffrey and Marjorie. Yeah, exactly. You're going to Marjorie basically literally going out and making herself like the people's champion here. Yeah. She sees the hole in the marketplace, right? The people hate Joffrey. Yes. And and Marjorie can make them love her. If if we're like, okay, I I, easy in Joffrey pissed everybody off last season. I can make them love me. And I love how too. So she's in that scene with the orphanage, right? She has that big grandiose speech that she tells the orphans, you know, your fathers were heroes, all that. They defended the city against people who wanted to conquer. And afterwards, she's talking to the orphanage leader and she's like, make sure that there's, you know, stuff that's provided for them and make sure that you come to me exclusively. And there's a little bit of a double. Yeah, well, exactly. She, she basically says, Hey, I'll feed them. I'll help educate them, etc." Uh, and you know, eventually her excuse is that she's done this type of thing in high garden before. Right. Uh, so there, at least that's what she just, tells them. Right. And she's yeah. Naturally. Yeah, she's naturally, naturally inclined towards the poor. But there's another thing, too, where she is she is endearing. And again, it's a very smart move early on. It's a very, very smart yeah. move as far as playing the long game, which is that she is endearing the people to her early on. She's kind of making yeah, them see, but okay. But she's also saying things like, uh, you know, there's a uh, the beginning of the scene when after they stop, there's a, a whole puddle of mud. Yeah, but literally serving, just pouring shit out of the window. So it's just dumps yeah, in a puddle so, in front of her. So her lady in waiting's like, you'll ruin your dress. And she just goes, like, 
you know, it's more. like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like, I got more. It's not a problem. And she's saying it loud enough so everybody can hear. So it's a hundred percent a show on Marjorie's end. Um, like you say, it, it's, the, this is how the Tyrells play the game of Thrones. Right. Um, you know, and the fact is, uh, they try to out charm and weasel their way into love, the love of the people. Right. And that's going to be their long game here because listen, you know, Joffrey is going to make way too many enemies and, you know, Marjorie is hopefully going to be able to take the power of the, uh, throne. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is the fact that Joffrey, Joffrey's days are numbered, right? We're, we're kind of, we're in season three now. So we're kind of past like kind of the heyday of Joffrey's rule. Joffrey's only got this season left where he doesn't really have as much to do as he did in the last season. And then he's got two episodes in the next season and then he dies and that's it. Like, and yeah, then we kind of like well, start that, that's, more that's Ramsey. The, that's the hindsight of uh, seeing the show, you know, uh, that we know that the, his days are numbered, but right. So, you know, if you go, if you haven't seen the show and you're going off of, you know, just what you see, uh, you could definitely pick up on the whole idea that the people that fail to play the Game of Thrones uh, that aren't thinking about they, they do not last long. Uh, they, they do they not last long. Yeah, strategize or whatever. Like when Marjorie is sitting there, you know, playing this game, and Joffrey's just sitting there, like twiddling his thumbs and doesn't really understand that right. she's I love how too when she goes out there when she goes out to it. interact with the people he's just sitting there in the in the in the car quivering just like kind of trading back and forth with his Kingsguard member it's like oh should I go out there oh maybe you should go you know he, he does not want to yeah. go anywhere near these people well and, he doesn't know what to do because right. uh, he can't understand what she's doing right and i think that's the thing is he can't think three moves ahead exactly. and ultimately that is the fatal flaw of most characters that die in this show is that they really can't keep up with the pace of what's going on what right. what the in- interpersonal relationships are what the sort of backroom deals are you know it's like they just don't know what the game is and you and see that and, and the and the amazing thing too is you see how that's kind of wrapped up in the next scene where you see them sitting down and having dinner right with 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 Marjorie and Loris and kind of like them discussing the scene today and like Joffrey of course is like just trying to play to Marjorie's suitability and everything he's trying to like you know play the king but Cersei immediately figures out what's going on and Cersei is not having any of it and it's very kind of subdued it's all portrayed in the body language but Cersei immediately senses that Marjorie is a threat because that's the whole thing about Cersei Cersei operates entirely from a sense of okay who is a threat to me and my immediate family that being my kids and that doesn't matter who it is and she immediately senses okay marjorie is endearing herself to the people in a way that joffrey and i have been unable to do since then you know and there's definitely a little bit of inherent jealousy there but also not because cersei does not care about the people in a way that marjorie does and she immediately you know starts to smell like kind of a snake in the garden and understand okay the tyrells they may have saved us in this instance but they are a threat going forward you know and i I think this is really interesting especially since the cersei marjorie rivalry specifically is what drives and ultimately you know causes a little bit of like you know and is a, a, a big driving force for the events that happen in seasons five and six ultimately kind of how that ends up wrapping itself up but i i love to see how that scene is so well established here you know especially for characters that I really were only introduced to last season. Like this episode handles a lot as far as like how tactful it is with its amount of storylines but we only have like two other major storylines, but like I just wanted to do like a brief stop off in Harren Hall. Uh, what's it called? We see Rob's forces arrive. Like they are. They, 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 I love again. It's only a brief scene, but we only need five seconds to see just how dissatisfied Rob's troops are with him. Like they arrive at Harren Hall. They discover Gregor. They, apparently, it's like right after a battle. He apparently sent some of his troops forward in order to try and take the ruin from Gregor. Gregor Clegane. They arrive. The Cleganes, The Lannisters deserted Harren Hall. They realize that like there's kind of there's no mutual or tactical advantage to being there. They all arrive. Everyone is just dead. 
everyone is just dead in the courtyard. They're kind of just walking around, seeing, you know, the, you know, viewing the dead. Bruce Bolton and Rickard Karstark are kind of conversing. You know, Rickard Karstark is clearly still pissed at Rob for the death of his sons and for, um, you know, and for Catelyn letting the Kingslayer go. Rob immediately confines Catelyn to a jail cell of some kind. You know, we don't, yeah. the, the Starks don't spend you know, too much time in Harrenhal, Hall, but it's... It, uh, it, it, this scene is very interesting because, you know, Lord Bolton and Karstark are talking about their enemies and, and what they've done and, and seeking justice for this. But ultimately by the end of the season, they side with the Lannisters and, you know, Walter Frey, and they have this plan to uh, basically usurp the Starks uh, and become, you know, Bolton's going to become the warden of the North. So, you know, in terms of what revenge are they going to be seeking? Like when Bolton says, you know, we need to, uh, you know, fight our enemies for this. Is this sort of the early seed that, you know, he needs to kill Rob? That Does he blame Rob for this? You know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, this is where the show should get a little more into the inner psychology of things because um, it's, if he, if Karstark and Bolton are really upset at the massacre and they're, they really want revenge against the Lannisters, uh, for all the deaths here, uh, the Red Wedding doesn't really make sense for them to to do later on. Right, so exactly. They, they, so this scene is kind of weird for me because it doesn't really lean you towards uh, that betrayal. You know, it doesn't really um, you know put the blame on Rob, so to speak, uh, enough. Right. Well, the, the whole I, I think thing we about, need to see that for this scene. Right. To, the whole thing really about this scene. Sense. The whole thing about this scene and the purpose that it serves, from what, from my mind, again, is kind of showing the different sides. Right. Again, we have two different sides. Right. Bolton versus Karstark. Bolton, who is clearly a lot younger, a lot more ambitious, does not hold kind of nearly a lot of the same kind of ancient odes that a lot of the older northern families, like the Starks, like the Karstarks, like the Umbers, hold. Very clearly, his his ambition and kind of his more ruthless nature was established early on. Versus Karstark, somebody who does still hold those inherent northern values that Rob does, but who uh, feels that he has been spited by Rob due to the fact that he feels that Rob has not done enough properly and because of the growing dissolution. And so I think that I think what's established here, again, is kind of the enmity that ultimately spawns is the fact that Rob ultimately beheads Rickard Karstark for quote-unquote betrayal when Rickard Karstark kills several Lancer boys that they take prisoners as revenge for the Kingslayer, you know, based on that slight. Meanwhile, Bruce Bolton ends up portraying the ultimate sin when he realizes the tactical advantage of siding with the Lannisters, which will give him the power which he seeks much more so than the retribution that can be gained from fighting the Lannisters consistently and losing you know over Ned Stark's um death which again we we've kind of everyone's kind of left that behind in the last season right that's a big thing about Rob's arc is that kind of the that slow decline that leads to the Red Wedding which is where Rob is kind of on a downward spiral nobody really cares about avenging Ned's death anymore everyone is just kind of tired everyone wants to go home yeah they're winning the battle but they're not gaining any further ground in the war forward and I think that kind of this scene again it's very very quick it's very small but i think it's intrinsic to setting up like kind of the conflict that happens yeah. with rob between these well, two well, also the other seed that's planted this is the final seed in this scene is that uh, the best hunters are chasing after jamie lannister yes. right we and don't see jamie in this episode at all but we know yeah, obviously that. But, but we now know that you know lord bolton's men are are chasing right. him down and, and bolton and, makes a point to say that the car stark out of rob's earshot like he makes it clear it's like okay when we get jamie he's gonna be an our control not necessarily start control yeah so uh it, it's one of those things where i think it's it's very subtle but it sets up uh some of the the best scenes that take place uh with jamie and brianne that Absolutely. are gonna happen uh this season 
Yes, absolutely. Two more storylines that we got to hit before we finish wrap up this episode. Uh, we obviously, you know, the after effects of the Blackwater Bay. I wasn't, I couldn't remember on my rewatch last season if this happened in this episode or the following episode, but it's this episode, right, where we catch up with Davos, who was revealed to have survived the battle um, in this episode, right? With the finale, we didn't know because the last we saw him was getting yeah. blown off the ship. But <laughs> that, ma- that makeup the- is really good. It's, oh, it's, it's awesome. basically I, just I, I like, like his burned feeling. He's totally been down, stuck on that yeah. rock. I mean, that's the thing that's established that he's been stuck on that rock for like a week or so like it's been a while like with no food like barely any water but he finally sees a ship he's waving to him crazily and the other thing that i think that's really awesomely well established too is like kind of how it's built up and stretched out where the ship arrives and they're like oh which king do you serve and he's like and he kind of hesitates every second because he's like oh shit if i say the wrong king i'm screwed but yeah. he, he does he sticks to his well, gun I, I think he decides right you know exactly what you're about to say that right. he is going to be true to who he is right he's going to uh say that he is loyal to stannis uh, and that's really, the, I think, the theme of Davos in this episode because uh, he's going to stick up for what he believes in. He's going to do what he has to do. And so after they rescue him and they are, you know, uh, basically the merchants, uh, it turns out the ones that Stannis had an alliance with. Um, uh, what, what was his name again? The the head merchant? Oh, uh, um, uh, Salador San? Yeah, Sal- Salador. So it's, it's Salador's men. And you know, yes, Davos. I would like to also correct you. You called him a merchant. He is a pirate, as he says. He is a pirate. Well, and a you know, pirate merchant. You know, tomato, tomato. I know. You know, it's similar, except for one kind of raids ships and right. potentially murders exactly. people. Exactly. But hey, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I think one of the things is they have a great conversation. Davos is like, uh, "Come on, help me out here. Like, get me back to you know, uh, Stannis." Uh, and it, it basically Salvador is like, hell no, man. I gave you 30 ships. You promised yeah. me, uh, riches and, I got and squat. Then Stannis lost. He's like, did you, last I checked, did you check that battle? Stannis lost that battle. All of his ships are yeah. at the bottom of the battle, Blackwater Bay. And Eric, that is an excellent question because last week in the books, Salvador San is still serving Stannis. Like when he goes north to the wall, but you're right. After Davos like recruits him in season four, we never see him again. Again, I, I will get to this later on because I have a working theory that all of the big problems that I have with Game of Thrones as far what happened in the last two seasons start in season five but we'll get to that at a later point but the big takeaway well, i think me- i think the answer is salvador basically just sails off for his own spinoff that hasn't been <laughs> um, i would watch a spinoff about salvador style that actor is uh, he uh what's it called it's funny i saw him again because there were a couple game of thrones actors that popped up in the his dark materials adaptation that came out on hbo also fantastic if you love that book series where he plays uh the leader of the gyptians um what's it called uh f- not farther quorum the other one uh john fa the leader of the gyptians john fa and he's fucking awesome that i was like hey Salador son and uh, lord commander mormont so they both left the show yeah. uh well, one died one didn't and they came to uh the his dark materials universe they crossed through the um, yeah. the portal that was cut open by the son of life into the dark into the, his dark materials universe here's my pitch you know it's called uh, the pirates of westeros we get johnny depp and uh hey. t- team him up with salador <laughs> i'm and- down with that you know what's you funny? I wouldn't be surprised if that guy did pop up in Pirates of the Caribbean at some point. But the big takeaway from this scene is the fact that San tells him, is like, look, Stannis has closed himself off from everybody. He's not seeing anyone. He's not seeing his advisors. He's not even seeing his wife. He is only seeing the Red Woman, and they are burning prisoners. You know, it definitely shows that, like, that kind of encounter that Stannis had with Melisandre at the end of the last season, it spooked him. He now kind of sees himself as, like, this vengeful messiah and everything. And Davos realizes, he's like, look, 
uh, something's got to be done. You know, Dav Davos kind of puts his life in I think that this season is probably the most important as far as Davos' season because last season we were introduced to Davos and he was just kind of like, he was Stannis' hand servant. He was kind of like Stannis' conscious, right? And now this season, I think, is the reinforcement of that where he knows, he's like, okay, he is putting his life aside. You know, he sees himself as no longer valuable. His son is gone as his inherently is, his legacy is gone. And his whole thing, is that, look, I have got to do what's right for my king at the end of the day. And he truly does believe in Stannis. And he believes that Melisandre is no good and will lead him yeah, I think darkness. I think ultimately, uh, you know, when when uh, Melisandre is introduced, right, we have the uh, the older gentleman in Stannis' court that basically tries to poison her yes, and ends uh, up dying. Exactly. So I, I think Davos, you know at first was like, Hey, what the hell? You shouldn't really be doing this. And like, he, he, he really goes with the flow. Like Stannis is our King. We have to follow him. And I think the arc here is to really put him in the position, uh, that he's willing to do what it takes for his King. And he pulls a dagger on Melisandre. Uh, and that leads him into the, uh, the, pr the prison cells. Yes. Yes, um, indeed. And, and, and it and, sucks too, because it's like the, the way that Melisandre puts it, it's like, fuck, there was a reason why this woman has a hold over Stannis because the way that she frames it, it is exactly the opposite of what Davos cautioned against it. Because remember last season, Davos cautioned Stannis against bringing Melisandre to Blackwater because then if Stannis wins the Blackwater, then it would be considered Melisandre's victory, not Stannis's, and that they wouldn't worship him or respect him as much. But it's completely backfired and gone in the opposite direction where now Stannis has lost Blackwater in the worst way possible. And now Melisandre's managed to flip the switch on Davos by saying, oh, because of your suggestion to Stannis that I not come, now that's the reason why Stannis is lost. And you can tell Stannis is buying this hook, line, and sinker. And, yeah, and Davos, it's, Davos it's really weird. That. It's really weird. But like, yeah, it's Stannis has these uh, schoolyard children that are like, oh, he started it. You know, and it's yeah, like. But it works. Um, that's the thing. Like, this, is, this yeah, shit it's, worked it's back bizarre. in the day. That's the thing. And that's it's, what. It's one yeah. of those things like Stannis should be able to step above this. And, uh, you know, again, looking at Stannis's uh, career portfolio in this show, <laughs> uh, you know, he basically uh, doesn't really think for himself. You know, someone tells him like, oh, hey, you know, uh, put some leeches on this guy and you can make some wishes. You know, uh, let's have a shadow, baby. Let's, uh, you know, um, what's that that scene where he kills his like uh, daughter? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. What are you like late, much, much later on, like, like yeah. Stannis basically is oh, like, man. yeah, let's just. Yeah, let's just do let's whatever. Just... It'll totally work. Death magic for life, you know. Death so Stannis is—it is, um, it doesn't work ever for him. Yeah, yeah. So Stannis like can never put two and two together, nope. and I, I think it's always. Um, it's always kind of to the detriment of other people because innocence oh because for a man who claims to be like righteous self-righteous and and you know the one true king it always feels like it, there are way more innocent people that are having to die and suffer because of his actions and almost a lot of other people almost like uh, i i know joffrey loved torturing his fair share of, of of people but like at the very least like no one the only real instance of people that ever ever at the very least every death that he ordered he knew that they were dying intentionally there are so many people that unintentionally die because of stannis's actions that he never originally intended to die it's kind of insane you know as far as the blood magic. i think the only instance where the blood magic works for him is when he drops the leeches in the fire for all of his enemies because all of those three kings that he names for the leeches do end up dying at some point throughout the show but again like not to the point well where yeah well, when we get there it's it's going to be like 
uh, within a couple of episodes of each other, two of them die, and then yes. the third one dies. Like what in the next well, couple uh, seasons? Couple seasons series? later, because you, know, you, like you get what? Rob at the end of this season. <laughs> then you get Joffrey literally only three episodes after, because Joffrey then dies in episode two of season four. That's the thing. I, I'm gonna have a lot of fun covering that episode because again, the Lion of the Rose is one of my favorite episodes, and I again reward the fact that Joffrey for such an impact goes out in episode two, episode two of that season, and then Balon Greyjoy doesn't die until two seasons later in the beginning of season six. It's kind of yeah. funny as far as that yeah, you know one of the things like the the whole leeches prophecy um that takes place and, and two out of the three really happen right away right and the third you know one what? It happens, happens much well, and i'll tell you why that happens it's because it's a fuck up it's a continuity fuck up from the books because because they wait so long to bring in the other Greyjoy storyline that happens a lot sooner in the books balon dies the whole thing that happens is that Balon dies before Rob dies in the books. In A Storm of Swords, they get word that Balon has been murdered, but they, and they don't know who did it, right? Because like I said, a lot yeah. of the stuff with, of, with the Greyjoys happens off book in A Storm of Swords. We don't see Ash well, at all. We don't see Theon this, while he's being tortured really... at all. Yeah, this really needed to take place uh, like sooner earlier. Because, because the problem is, by the time they're brought back in, we're coming off an entire season with like no Greyjoys other than Theon, and so by the time they bring that back in, it's almost like, oh yeah, these were characters wait, in the show. Does does uh you know uh, Papa Greyjoy? He dies after Stannis, right? After Stannis, that's the crazy thing. Yes, yeah, Stannis yeah, dies yeah, first so... in the season finale, and then Pop Balon Greyjoy dies in the first couple episodes of season six after oh, man. Stannis dies. So, so this little scene here with Davos <laughs> uh, has for another three seasons after Stannis well, well, dies. Sorry, it's it's led to a path where my mind is blown uh, that this this whole thing was not sorted out. Oh, I've always crazy. felt like uh, Melisandre. Um, some of the things just didn't add up. And, oh, and that, oh, oh, <laughs> wait, oh, just wait, oh, just wait, oh, like, like I said, yeah. we're, we're gonna put a pin in that because we gotta wrap up this episode, but don't <laughs> worry, we will get to that later on, because there was a lot of shit that Melisandre does this yeah. whole season where I'm just like, what is happening? Like, what, what is the exactly. motivation here? She, she's a very interesting character, and I like the mysterious kind of witch nature of things, um, but yeah, ultimately, it, the magic of the, the, the Lord of Light really doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense at all. And before we get to the, to ask support with Daenerys, there's one other thing that I completely forgot about in King's Landing, which is an important, quick but crucial scene and pivotal scene, which is the scene where uh, Littlefinger with Sansa, you know, it's kind of a continuation of their whole thing from the oh, previous the ships, season. Right? The, ships, they they, yeah. the ship and game. The, and it's a really, it's a really quick and brief but interesting moment where again, Littlefinger is once again, it, it's the beginning of kind of Littlefinger and Sansa's little game that gets paid off. But there's a really interesting interaction that happens between Roz and Shay here where Roz tells Shay, you know, look after him. You know, Roz is trying to like relate to Shay. Shay's not having any of it. But Roz tells her, you know, look after and protect her. And she's like, I always protect her. She's like, make sure you look after her with him. And like, because Roz knows is like you know she she knows better than to trust little figure and obviously you know we know that it costs her life as uh as 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 time goes on but uh it's a brief quick little scene but it's, it's a fascinating one and one that i again is going to pay off later on down the road and little finger says it's like i'm waiting to hear back on a potential assignment they may have for me and when i leave i may be able to get you out of here obviously referring to them wanting to use him in order to court lisa aaron and bring her back into the fold but we wrap up pat she's finally we're finally we're back at the beginning of Daenerys' journey towards awesomeness is what I call, right? After a season of her just being downtrodden upon and a season of her kind of just wavering around with nothing really to do, this is the beginning of Daenerys' journey towards badass. Um, we, we cut in with her. Really a fucking awesome intro shot, cutting across the waves from the viewpoint of the dragon. The dragons have grown like exponentially. And they're, they're now the size of like, kind of like a little bit bigger hey, than uh, birds. Listen, like... uh 
you know, in the last season we left the dragons, they were like as big as my phone here. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like palm of the hand yeah. style stuff. Now they can, and, now they're like, they can like sit on her shoulder. They're like, they're, they're, they're big. They're, they're yeah, getting bigger. They, that, and that's the whole thing that's established that dragons, when they're, when they eat consistently in our fed, they grow big quick. Yeah, yeah. But as and, you said, and not listen, quick enough. These dragons are at this point bigger than people. Yeah, not quite, not quite. Oh, just about as big as people, but not quite bigger. Well, hey, at least they're bigger than Tyrion, right? Right. So, uh, you know, the main thing is, I I will say that the dragons are growing. They're a little more powerful. And we haven't even gotten to uh, the later storyline of the dragons sort of, you know, learning to... Uh, do their own thing without right. uh, and becoming you know, more vicious, and becoming more vicious uh, too. So it's very interesting when she's like, "Oh, they're not growing fast enough." It's it's almost like, "Be careful what you wish for," yeah, right. uh, because <laughs> yeah. you know, as soon as yeah. they grow bigger than this, you That's know, they start things, killing people randomly. Yeah, they're not going to be as uh, you know uh, what you thought. Right. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things. Like they really do show, um, you know. Danny being naive here, it's like, yeah, only if the dragons were bigger, I could conquer the world right yeah, now. Yeah, and then you're, and and it's then, like yeah, that's and, not and Dora how it works. Her, Dora kind of reminds her, like, you gotta wait, like they're 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 gonna be, it's gonna be a couple of years. And like that's why we're heading to Asp. We're kind of establishing, you know, they're using the jewels, the riches that they raided from the Karth vaults, and they're using it. They're gonna go, they're gonna buy an army. They're like, screw, it. we can't wait around anymore. You know, we're old enough, we can't wait for the dragons to depend on them. There are people out there that still want to kill us. This is established. We need to start arming ourselves for this. And so they're finally. Daenerys is finally in a place where she's got full agency on her own for the first time ever. You know, she's dressed in a sleek blue dress that they got from Carl. You know, she has positioned herself as a person of prominence. They are going to ultimately begin the thing, you know, begin the quest in order to bring them back towards Westeros. And their first stop is Astapor, one of the three famous slave cities on Slaver's Bay. And this kind of begins a kind of her micro journey within like kind of, you know, dealing with slavery and kind of trying to free the world from some of the injustices that she faces. You know, this is really where that arc is established based off of everything she experienced, both with the Dothraki in season one and, and in Karth in season two, you know, just trying to survive. And so they arrive in Astapor, and they meet one of the slavers who kind of, you know, does this big, grandiose show showing off all of the Unsullied and kind of what they're capable of. You know, we're introduced to the Unsullied here, which famously, again, are is an entire army comprised of eunuchs. But the whole thing about them is that they are trained from birth to have no fear of death and to be completely and utterly loyal to their masters. And with some pretty despicable and kind of like really like a mind-numbing like training methods as well. Well, it, the the training is meant to kill a majority and of them. I, th- I think they yeah. said like a quarter of the people uh, survive uh, and become unsullied. The rest right. sort of die. Yeah. And, and the main thing is like to make sure that their humanity has been beaten out of them. Uh, their final mission is to uh, go into the marketplace and kill a baby in front of its mother. Right. And then the uh, what was the thing? The the uh, slave owner. Uh, oh, gives gives the mother it, a it, silver coin for the trouble, and even this is a yeah, little no, no, but 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 it's it's not the mother who gets the coin; it's right, the, the actual, owner of the child. Yeah, the owner of the mother and owner of the child right, gets right because the mother again is a slave. It's setting up again, just like kind of the, this really awful, awful system. It, again, it, it's a little bit, I would say, over the top, but it, but it's necessary in this instance in order to kind of emphasize just kind of the horrors and the brutality of slavery. And as far as like kind yeah, of underlies Daenerys's like righteous quest to like free the world that we and, obviously and see. Jor, Jor is just like, yeah, let's just Jorah's buy, buy them. Jorah's let's just kind of rolling just, with it. Yeah, like, Jorah's well, definitely let, still a little bit from the old, but we also know Jorah's got a history of like enslaving people. He 
had to flee from Westeros because Ned Stark wanted his head for, again, capturing poachers on his land and selling them into slavers. Like, Jorah, I will say, it, it definitely puts a little bit more of a negative light on Jorah, where he's just kind of like, okay, this is kind of just the status quo. This is kind of just how things have been. Well, we kind of just got to do I, our thing and move on. The, the main thing is, like, he's willing to pay into the system, so he's going to perpetuate the system. Right. Uh, but he makes an argument that... Danny's going to feed them better, is going to put right. them in, under Danny better protection. Danny will be a more just ruler. That's the thing. Exactly. And so it sort of justifies the means. And I think he's just trying to get her to uh, you know, purchase this army so they can get onto it. Right. And, and I don't think she's going to rush into that decision right. uh, lightly. The, big, the biggest sense of, I feel like, divide between Jorah and Daenerys that we see is that Jorah is constantly like, look, we got to keep moving. There are constantly people that are trying to come after us. We got to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving nonstop. And Daenerys, because she's still so young and so inexperienced relative to him, she kind of sees things in a very different way. Again, kind of like that generational divide where she is not yet used to all of the horrors of the world. Obviously, again, she had brutal conditions with Dothraki, brutal conditions in Cart, but she is now in a position where she does not want to see this kind of suffering continue to happen to people. And this is, again, it, it kind of literally begins a conquest to quite literally liberate the slave leaders and literally spend an entire significant amount of time in this portion of the world so that she can learn how to rule and show the world that there is a position and a world that can exist without this type of slavery and this type of brutality and overlook. And I think it's a really interesting start how that's kind of all started here. And, of course, the scene well, we, from, we visualize it, right? You right. Know, the, the master's like, let me show you how... Uh, desensitize the unsullied yeah. are. And it literally and he, cuts off his nipple. And I'm just yeah, like, yeah, it, which is crazy. It, it's basically unflinching, and uh, once he's done cutting the nipple, he's like, you know, men don't have a knee for it. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm all done with you. And, and the guy is like, yes, master. You know, yeah, you know, and he kind of thanks him for it. He's just kind of like disgusted by it. We're also introduced to Miss yeah. Sande here, obviously, you know. It's so weird seeing Natalie Emmanuel in that position, and now she's like kind of riding with Vin Diesel and Tyrese in the Fast and Furious movies. And I still remember seeing her here, and I'm just like, wow, what a, what a long way. What, 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 a, what an interesting career path that actress has had. But we're introduced yeah. to her here as well. Again, the, the, the kinship between her and Daenerys is not yet established, but the, again, it's kind of established again. She is, she is, she is as savage as like she is. She has no rights. She is, she well, is not the master. Yeah, at, at this point, the master is basically just like expletives all over the place. Yeah, uh, mocking everyone. Again, taking advantage yeah, of the fact that exactly. he thinks that Daenerys doesn't understand him, but it's established later on. Daenerys, Daenerys knows Valyrian. Like every Targaryen kind of inherently knows Valyrian. You know. Yeah. So you know, it's one of those things where the master is uh, very flippant and. and insulting to Daenerys, uh, but, you know, obviously she knows what he's saying, uh, and I think this is a great sort of scene that sets up, uh, you know, the relationship between Missandei and Danny because uh, ultimately when it's revealed that she does know Valyrian, uh, you know, it's going to be one of those scenes where uh, Missandei, you know, sort of rallies to her side. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed, and it's going to pay off in a big way in a couple of episodes, but the last shot that we have with this episode is her and Jorah walking on the dock. She sees this little girl that, like, you know, she's trying to, like, appeal to her humanity. You know, Danny, of course, goes for it. This throws a ball to her. There's this shadow cloak figure that's following them. She stops Daenerys from picking up the ball. Jorah thinks that he's the assassin. Wait, hold, you do a very on, clever bait-and-switch here. Da Dom, is, is the person in the cloak Luke Skywalker? It might be. Hey, but for all we know, yeah. it might be, you know? But it's not. Of course, it's revealed to be a bait-and-switch. The little girl is revealed to be a warlock. Again, the last we ever see of the warlocks, it kind of almost drags the scene down because it's like, oh, man, I thought we were done with the dumb warlocks. I thought we left them behind in the last season, but they're still here. Just for that one brief moment before the little girl runs off the dock and jumps off, uh, what's it called? The person stabs the, 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 the what, what is it, like a bug thing? A scorpion, I think well, it is. I, I think it's a green scorpion. Yeah. It's, it's, 
I guess I guess it's one of those fantasy moments where they're bringing out this cool creature, right? Uh, but and then dra- immediately basically gets out. for the rest of the series, it's like White Walkers, dragons, dragons and, and people, and and, and, uh, and, 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 the, and red priestesses. Yeah, and, and this was like one of the only episodes where like another another creature sort of showed up. Oh, well, we got z- we got z- we got a zombie polar bear. We did get a zombie polar bear, but yeah, and, uh, that is the one thing I will say that definitely lacks is that the like kind of the different like flora and fauna, different creatures for the most part, it's just like oh, it's just like regular creatures other than that you know and that anyway, I, I think it's a great moment it i really is a great moment. i and really again, enjoy the docs and uh, the introduction of the reintroduction we should know, say the yeah, bring oh, it yeah, back exactly. he's back after going out like a boss against cersei we didn't see him for all of last season he's back in the season barristan sell me portrayed once again by ian mcclenny he is back he is here to serve daenerys he has had his time in westeros he is now here to serve what he believes again he is here to honor the debt that he that he was unable to keep to the rest of her family when they lost the trident and when he served robert baratheon and jorah kind of reminds her of that and throws it back in her face but barristan is here to say this is another scene that is done completely different in the books because for the majority of the books daenerys does not know the identity of sir barristan he's kept completely um he's kept, he keeps his identity completely a secret he reveals himself as the squire of this former slave um from the fighting pit strong bellwath who is not featured in the show in any capacity and is revealed uh, you know, and is only revealed at the last minute when he saves her life and reveals, obviously, uh, Jorah's treachery against her. They, that whole break that happens completely differently in the books than he does here. But here, he establishes who he is. He states that he's here to serve her and everything, and that he is here to honor the debt that he failed to, uh, to partake in protecting her father and her yeah. brother when they were executed. It's, it's, well, a, it's a full well, circle moment for him. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, you know, for the show, you have to streamline that storyline, uh, make it clear who he is. Yes. And it's also serves to show the audience that Danny is getting an upgrade. Like she's yes. basically on the verge of pushing. She is an army. moving to the next level. She's got yeah. an army. She's got another advisor. She's about to get a brand exactly. spanking new set of kind of camaraderie that surrounds her. We got Grey Worm in a couple episodes. We got Dario in a couple episodes. We got Missandei in this episode. Like her posse is building. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like uh, I love it when a plan comes together. Like, <laughs> like, th- this is going to be Danny's. He kind of even looks like Hannibal from the A-Team TV show too. That works so ultimately that's how the that's how the show wraps up and sh- it shows it like yeah certain characters are on the rise certain characters are on the fall but it shows that we are in for a long game as far as season three goes but one that is going to come in with a powerful punch at the end so good episode honestly i really like it one of the few episodes where nobody dies in this episode i, I was trying to keep track like aside from like like the yeah, only the, people the, fa- the fantasy scorpion the, the, right, the, the, the wife the wife that that on screen, even though we, we see them happen in gruesome detail in the books and the great scorpion. But yeah, no deaths in this episode. One of the few episodes with no deaths. But yeah, really good episode. Really awesome start to season three. I honestly think that out of the three premieres, I think this might be my favorite, honestly. Like, I really, really dug this episode. But yeah, well, t- uh, Tyrion's ambition dies. It does. It, <laughs> you know, like, like, it a little bit of like, uh, not such, getting glass But, but it pays the way for such this interesting dynamics and build up, and it kind of re- reintroduces and reinforces all the stuff that we missed so much about kind of like that was really established in that first season that we didn't get to spend time to we do because we just kind of like had to spend so much time with Ned Stark and constantly, him constantly reminding us that he had no idea what the fuck he was doing. But now we're really enmeshed in the game, and it is only getting more so that was our review of the season three premiere our 21st episode overall valar dohitis what did you guys think whatever you thought let us know in the comment section below be sure to click the like button click the subscribe button follow us on facebook and instagram at talking tv podcast if you aren't already pat where can the good people find you on the interwebs 
Uh, listen, I'm just talking about uh, this throne stuff uh, right here on the Talking TV channel. So check it out there. And uh, I keep promising, you know, at some point I'll, I'll, you know, fire up Instagram and I'll post something. Uh, hey, man, know, I, we're going to hold it to a, By the time this series is done, you will have posted something on there. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can look it up at, at Patrick W. Hubert. It's it, eventually you'll see something other than the uh, things I've posted in the past. <laughs> and of course, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Movie Nerd Reviews. Again, we've got our we've got our Prisoners of the Ghostland review going up tomorrow. That was, oh, man, Pat, I, if you want just an insane Nicolas Cage movie to watch, Watch that movie, one hundred percent. It was no, a lot of they, fun. Aren't they all crazy? Well, no, but this at this one point, <laughs> at this point, yes, but that one especially, uh, yeah. So you guys can check that review out tomorrow. We've got our Halloween Resurrection, the next installment of our Halloween first time watch going up next week. I love Eric's comment too that he brought up at the end where he's like, "It's always jarring when no one dies in a Game of Thrones episode." Uh, but yeah, that's true. We got one, and we will see you guys next week for episode two. Dark wings, dark words. We're only getting started. The battle of the throne is continuing and we'll see you. And of course we're only getting into October where we're going to have a bunch of stuff, a bunch of great reviews coming your guys way. All that and more 12 seasons of the short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see yeah, you guys more, next more week. pay raises for Braun. You know? Yes, indeed. More pay raises for Braun. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>